Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. This is Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 184. One of my favorite parts of the day, everybody comes out and cheers for us at seven o'clock, and it's just amazing. Uh, I wish they did this every day. Uh, during normal times. Global crises like the current COVID pandemic have a way of turning unlikely figures into heroes. Witness the daily homages of clapping hands and banging pots that are showered upon nurses, doctors, physicians' assistants, and other hospital staff as they change shift. Another even quieter hero of the pandemic might be the biomedical technicians who have rushed into storage closets to rescue, repair, and restore ventilators and other medical equipment needed to treat desperately ill COVID victims. Alas, one of the less reported stories of this pandemic is the ways in which changes to the medical device market have made servicing and repairing of critical life-sustaining medical devices even more difficult for biomeds. Our first guest this week is Kyle Weens, the founder of the website iFixit. With COVID starting to spread and reports coming in from countries like Italy, and China about shortages of ventilators, Weens and his company sprang into action and launched Project Biomed, an extensive crowdsourced effort involving hundreds of librarians and archivists to collect, catalog, and publish service and repair manuals for thousands of medical devices. Weens tells us that COVID has exposed the growing effort by medical device manufacturers to deny hospitals and biomedical technicians access to critical information they need to service equipment. In the context of a global pandemic, those business policies, while good for the bottom line, have caused major problems. Kyle Weens, uh, co-founder of iFixit. Great to have you back on the podcast, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat repair and all the yeah. developments lately. Yeah, there have been a lot. So we're talking today just about the controversy that's come up and the discussion around um, ventilators and, and repairing ventilators. This takes place in the in the context of a much bigger kind of ongoing you know, struggle to pass right to repair, which you're also very involved in. That all seemed to, you know, we were making good progress on that, it seemed, in 2020. And then COVID came along and kind of knocked everything onto the floor in terms of legislation and, and so on. But lo and behold, this um, this very repair-centric conversation or issue cropped up in the midst of the COVID outbreak, which is around uh, medical devices and repairing ventilators. Could you talk just a little bit about kind of the dimensions of this, sort of what happened in that sort of January, February, March timeframe? Right. So hospitals use a wide variety of complex equipment. It's all got electronics. Uh, some of it's cutting edge, some of it's relatively simple, but uh, it's it's in use all day, every day. You know, you have multiple shifts in the hospital and equipment is rotating through. It gets very heavy use. And so there's constant repairs that are happening on, on all of this equipment and there are preventative maintenance schedules. 
and hospitals have their own technicians internally at the hospital that do repairs. They're called biomedical technicians. So they're the IT staff of the hospital. They're running around when they get a call from a nurse so the piece of equipment is malfunctioning. They take it back to their lab. They fix it. They run checks on it and they get it back out in the field. And this is, this is how hospitals have worked for a long time. But what we, what we started hearing in the January, February timeframe was that uh, as this equipment was being utilized in Italy uh, in much heavier duty cycles, so a ventilator normally doesn't get used all the time. Anesthesia machines are only used uh, during surgeries every once in a while. Uh, yeah. and, and when they're used, they're only used for a short period of time. All of a sudden, all of this equipment was getting pressed into very heavy use. And the, the number of failures that happened with the equipment was going up because of the increased usage. Right. And when we're talking about ventilators, obviously, uh, failures are, are uh, life-threatening. They are very bad. <laughs> you got to keep this equipment running. We've been hearing from the biomeds that because the equipment is being in use, they're not getting the opportunity to do the preventative maintenance that they normally do. So normally, you know, they'll pull a unit out of service uh, every so often and, and do the preventative maintenance and clear filters and that kind of thing. And, and so y- your odds of a failure go up if you're postponing preventative maintenance. Can we talk about like the ventilator as an instrument? Because I've seen there have been a lot of stories about, you know, this this group and that group kind of create their own, you know, make their own impromptu ventilator to help out in, you know, kind of name the country. When we're talking about a a ventilator, it sounds like a super complex piece of machinery, but I get a sense reading these stories that maybe not. The principle is simple and it's really about you're breathing for someone. So you put a tube down their throat and then you're applying pressure at regular intervals. One backup strategy in case the ventilators all break or we don't have enough of them is actually to have a person there with a respirator that is doing it by hand, just basically a a plastic bag, right? Breathing for someone. You can do that manually. (laughs) Uh, It's just the machine is going much better yeah. at it. And the, the ventilator and anesthesia machines have oxygen supplies. So they're actually feeding pure oxygen into your lungs. Um, so in concept, it's a relatively simple machine, but there are a lot of settings, uh, like a lot of settings. I, there's like five major you know things that you can change. Um, and I like to think of programming this thing or, or configuring it is kind of like configuring an SLR camera where you've got, you know, aperture and shutter speed and focus. And you've got all these different different yeah. settings that kind of interact yeah. with each other. Setting up a ventilator is like that. Right. And and they're they're uh they're great machines. You kind of need to be trained on on each one. Uh, but the principles of you know making a camera, taking a picture, or you know, breathing for someone are relatively straightforward. And so you could absolutely build one and that's what we're seeing everyone do. I mean, I know of dozens of these projects. And I, there are a handful of sort of you know, garage tinker engineers that have made ventilators completely from scratch in their yeah. garage. Um, yeah. But there's a big difference between that and something that you can produce in volume and something that would be certified to, to use in a healthcare right, environment. Right. And presumably the ones that you see used in hospitals, they can be modified depending on the size of the patient or their you know uh, lung capacity or, or what have you. Yes. And the resistance of the lungs. So the the more the more diseased your lungs are, the more resistance there is, and the more force that right. the ventilator has to apply. And that's a big difference between you. Know, people have been saying, well, why can't we use the CPAP machines for sleep apnea? Why can't you use those as a ventilator? Right. And you can initially when people are not very sick, but as they get sicker, you need more and more force to to open the lungs. You need a more advanced machine. This all came to a head, of course, because COVID coronavirus is a respiratory illness and, and in its most advanced serious phase, it, it really can shut down the operation of your lungs. 
And so, uh, as you said, a couple problems cropped up. One is because these ventilators were getting used so heavily, they were breaking down because they were being used more, you know, intensely than they really had been designed to be used. And the second that we saw here in the United States was there was some effort to stockpile these machines in expectation of some kind of a flu or respiratory pandemic, respiratory illness pandemic. But then those machines were not maintained in storage. And so when they got brought out of storage, lo and behold, many of them uh, didn't start up as it were. Exactly. Our national ventilator stockpile. Uh, and it, it turned yeah. out there was some maintenance that happened, but then there was a lapse in the service contract, and so they weren't working on them for a little while. I've been I've been asking you, what are the standard preventative maintenance procedures that you need to do on these things? And yeah, that was my next question. What did, what yeah. is what does maintenance of a ventilator entail? Right. Yeah. What what did they not do? It seems to be that it's mostly batteries because these they have a backup battery in case power in the hospital goes out. You don't want your ventilator to shut off. These things have startup checks that would check to make sure that that the preventative maintenance has been done. So that's another thing. Filters need to be changed. But overall, it's pretty darn straightforward. And, and when I talk with biomeds and I say, you know, what's the secret to learning how to repair medical equipment? They say, well, the secret is that this stuff is so easy to work on compared to consumer electronics. You, know, you think about mm-hmm. like changing the battery in an iPad is a Herculean feat. You have to unglue the glass and get all the way in. Uh, hospital equipment is designed to be serviced and it's relatively straightforward to work on. Okay. So if that's the case, then why am I reading these articles that say actually repairing these things has become a huge obstacle for hospitals that biomedical technicians, as you said, are not able to um, service these in many cases? Right. So this is unveiling a schism that has been going on in the medical world, and it's been getting worse and worse. And I I hadn't realized until the last month or two how bad it had really gotten, uh, where there is tension between the hospitals that want to be able to do the maintenance themselves and the medical device manufacturers that have found that there is increased ongoing recurring revenue if they can handle the service themselves. So the, the manufacturers have been uh, restricting access to things that you need to, to fix the, the equipment, whether it's service information, diagnostic software, parts. With with some machines, they're just stopping making that information available to the hospital so that the only choice is to get on a maintenance contract. And these maintenance contracts run tens of thousands of dollars a year. They are very, very expensive. And the, the folks that I know that have access to hospital financials uh, uh, say that you know, equipment maintenance is a huge part of a hospital budget. This is akin to the sort of Apple Care program that you might uh, sign up for when you buy your new phone or something. Exactly, it's it's like that, but it's dramatically more expensive. I mean, but but a lot more expensive, of course, yeah. right? Yeah. So you have a hospital where they could be paying millions of dollars a year uh, for third party uh, support contracts if they could uh, do it in house. And many of these repairs can be done in house. They just have to have access to the information. So, like all great political fights, it boils down at the end of the day to money behind the scenes. Uh, right. And this is the, the medical device manufacturers have found that they can uh, bring the cert, you know, t- take the service away from the hospitals by by you know using their intellectual property rights uh, to restrict access to information. So they've been been sharing fewer and fewer service manuals, and so it's really interesting if you go on all the biomed forums online. Uh, there is <laughs> sometimes you get an interesting discussion like I'm having this technical problem. Can you help me? But I would say two thirds of the threads are I need a service manual for X machine. Do you have it? And then someone replies, Oh yeah, I've got it. I'll PM it to you. 
And and then the next thread is the same thing with a different machine, and then the same thing with a different machine. It's there is this entire like gray market of biomeds passing manuals between each other. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, right. And of course, we and, see and let's this. be clear: there's nothing there's nothing illegal about that, really. Well, I mean, it comes down to your interpretation of of copyright law. Are our service manuals copyrightable? I would right. argue no, that they're, they're factual information, that there was no commercial incentive driving the creation of that service manual. It right. was created out of necessity. In the case of medical devices, it was, the service manuals are required to be created by law in order to get, uh, in order to become an approved medical device. But the, but the law does not stipulate that they need to be made available to customers. Yeah, I, I, as far as I know, I, I haven't seen any, any medical law that says that. It seems like it would be a fairly easy fix to do that. Yeah, uh, the proposed right to repair laws uh, in many states in Massachusetts and elsewhere do cover medical equipment and would require the manufacturers make that information available to their customers. Right. So we've had a variant of this conversation in in the context of smartphones and automobiles and so many other different types of devices. But I think it's always like useful to point out, or at least to make the point that things have not always been this way. So as you said, if you were to get step in the wayback machine and go back to the '90s or the 1980s you would find hospitals with slightly less sophisticated equipment, but still pretty sophisticated medical equipment. But by and large, those hospitals would be servicing them themselves, I guess. Right. And then that's historically how it's always been. The hospitals do the repairs. And it's only recently, and maybe it started with MRI machines, and then they found that model worked in this, so they started creeping into other products. But every hospital has a team of biomed technicians on staff and they're fixing equipment in the hospitals all day, every day. That's what they do. They're really good at it. And they just have to have the, the tooling they need to be able to do their jobs. This is the way you, you roll, Kyle. You've thrust yourself into this and said, I'm going to do something about this. And you're going about pulling together digital versions of service manuals for many of these respirator devices. Could you talk about that project? All right. So we're calling this Project Biomed <laughs> in honor of the people that we're trying to help. And we have, uh, we put the call out and said, Hey, all, all you biomeds, send us your service manuals. Everybody has, you know, an unorganized folder. They've got a thumb drive with jumbled up PDFs. Uh, and <laughs> there is a website called Frank's Hospital Workshop run by a guy out of Tanzania uh, named Frank, who has been collecting hospital service manuals for a long time. And he's done a great job. It's been the, the lonely effort of one guy, uh, working. In, in Tanzania, and he has pulled together a phenomenal amount of information. But what we've learned is that he is having trouble keeping up with the pace of new uh, device introductions. The, the number yeah. of different products inside these hospitals is absolutely monumental. Uh, it's at the scale and scope. I mean, iFix is the largest repair manual in the world. We're used to dealing with tens of thousands of devices, and I would say there are tens of thousands of just kinds of medical devices that are used in hospitals. Uh, so the, the task was kind of bigger than Frank could take on. Also, he's gotten DMCA takedown threats from manufacturers that you know one guy uh, may not be able mm -hmm, to deal mm -hmm. with, where we've got more legal resources to protect access to this information. And so we put out the call and we said, share your service manuals with us. And now we have a, a, a big, a very big hard drive full of, of manuals and other documents we've been given. And we have pulled together a network of volunteers that are helping us organize, collate that information. And once it's collated and well-organized, we're uploading it to iFix. Many of them uh, idled, idled librarians and uh, archivists, I understand. Absolutely. We have librarians and archivists from over 100 different universities helping us. 
Uh, they're extraordinarily good at, at organizing and sifting information, and we're, we're really grateful to their help. For a while, we spent about two weeks just trying to organize it ourselves. I pulled about 10 of my people off of their regular jobs and said, just help us organize the service manuals. Yeah. And we just could not keep up. We were not making a dent. Yeah. <laughs> and so we put out the, the bat signal. We said, please help us. We reached out to the American Library Association and some university partners that we have and the support poured in. It's been really amazing. So, so these are, these are people have kind of uh, had these things lying around on their, on maybe the laptop they use to go and, and work on devices, their, their personal laptop, and they had collected them from sources and contacts and, and, uh, you know, public resources and so on. Maybe they scanned a hard copy themselves or what have you. Yeah, a lot of this is information that's been on manufacturer websites. Like Mindray makes the information available. But think about your biomed. Having but they've pulled it back, right? Or they've they've uh, they've read well. Most manufacturers it. don't. Mindray still makes the information available, but like Welch, Allen, Drager, mm-hmm. and GE, they don't make. And and I think listeners should understand that. I I mean, you and I have talked before, Kyle, and I really look at this as like a it's like a social contract that that kind of at some point dissolved, where you know companies and and maybe this is kind of a problem writ small that we've seen, you know, in, in corporate America or just the corporate world in general, just this um, dissolving notion of responsibility and citizenship. But so corporations of all sorts that used to just make service manuals, you know, part of what you got when you bought the product, right? Um, and schematics and, and other stuff that you would need to service it, just stop doing that because they at some point made a decision that they wanted to monopoly they wanted to have a monopoly for that service and and be able to make you know premium dollars off of it and so these resources that used to just be publicly available on their website or or you know by mail uh, suddenly are not or they're available for a fee and and then those fees kind of go up and up mm-hmm. and up yeah, we've definitely noticed that you're a startup medical device manufacturer, really excited to bring a product into the world and, and help people. And of course, you include the service manual with that. You're really excited about the new product. And then as the company matures, you know they've got regular profit that they're trying to hit and they want to grow that every year. And you say, well, what are some opportunities to increase profit? Well, service is lucrative. Let's go after that. And it takes really yeah. principled people at companies. And you can see Mindray is an example of this, where People inside the companies are saying, no, like the, it, it is more important that we help, <laughs> right? That, that we maintain the functionality of these things and the, that we put the power in the hospital's hands. I really think that they, you know, distributed ecosystem where you have the more people that are capable of repairing something, the more resilient society is going to be. Yes, yes. And so when you're cataloging these service manuals, kind of give us a peek at what that looks like. So you've got these huge, basically document dumps that include both service manuals and other assorted detritus from, from hard drives. Yeah, sure. This is exactly what it is. There's clutter. Um, there's text files with, you know, notes that they've made about uh, the machines. In general, you know, there's usually a, a operator manual or a user manual. There's a service manual. There may be parts lists. And then there are also technical service bulletins, which may be updates, uh-huh. you know, uh, things that they've learned over the years. Uh, and then also, uh, because we're merging uh, information from multiple sources, we may have several different versions of the same service manual. So we got to make sure that we have the most recent version and that we're, we're not getting outdated information out to the world. Are you making an effort to capture any of those notes or a kind of ephemera that might be useful? I mean, we have it, but honestly, just the, the task yeah, of getting enough work. online, yeah. we're staying pretty focused on that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have 
while we've uploaded um, hundreds, like we have over 500 ventilator service files on iFixit now, we've got uh, close to a thousand anesthesia machine service files uh, where the anesthesia machines have ventilators built into them and they're kind of backup, backup sources inside the hospitals. And then we've added uh, a, a bunch of other critical equipment, CPAP, BPAP machines. Um, and other, you know, respiratory analyzers right. are important right. for, and, and, uh, and we're, we're, we're adding more. So I, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the file system now, right now, so far we've categorized 70. It's funny when I, when I hear you talk about it, cause, cause obviously I fix it as published, like, you know, repair manuals or created manuals for so many different products, but I can kind of hear like the awe in your voice as you look at like how many of these <laughs> medical devices there are out there potentially that could be, you know, part of this biomed project. Yeah. This is a really substantial project. We had to develop new software tools for managing the amount of information that we have. We had to deploy a whole new organization system for the volunteers because uh, the current tooling that we have just didn't work fast enough. <laughs> And it's thousands of hours of organizing uh, PDFs and, and, and getting ready. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very substantial amount of effort. And that's where, I mean, I'm just amazed at how useful Frank's hospital workshop has been over the years. I mean, he has put years of his life into organizing this site. And it's, it's really well done. It's really well organized. And, I mean, now I, we're definitely at the point where, like, for ventilators and anesthesia machines, I fix it is dramatically more comprehensive than Frank, but that's only because we had hundreds of people helping us. Uh, it's it's just I, I have a huge amount of respect for what he's done. Yeah, we're gonna have to reach out and talk to Frank. Frank the hero, he is. Yeah, yeah. There there's so many stories out that uh, out there about people who just are passionate about this and kind of devote you know years of their lives to you know pulling whether it's service manuals or or whatever else. You know, I mean, the internet is just. You know, there there's so many stories out there like that. It's one of the things that makes the internet great. Right. So just give us a sense, because I'm always surprised people kind of don't don't do repairs themselves and maybe aren't aren't appreciative or don't understand uh, like why service manuals matter or like how they might be used by a repair professional or even a, a an owner. But how would you use one of these, let's say, respirator service manuals to, to repair a machine? What information would it provide you that you needed to, uh, to do a repair? Well, it'll have troubleshooting flowcharts. So it, you know, it's, it's blinking a light five times. What does the red light blinking five times mean? And the manual will tell you, know, it's, the, it's the decoder chart. It'll tell you what that means. Right, right. Uh, it'll tell you, you know, instructions. Some of these things have, have uh, screen interfaces where you can go into debug mode and, and get some additional information. Uh, it's got the preventative maintenance schedules. So this is how often you should change items. This is the part number. If you need to order a new air filter, this is, this is the part number for that. Have you heard from any of the medical device makers in regard to this project, or um, have you had a chance to talk with them about making their manuals available to you and your and your volunteers? We have not heard from them. Uh, we'd certainly be interested in having a conversation. Uh, we uh, we put out a post today offering to help them organize their information. Certainly, this is the kind of thing that we want them to be able to focus on manufacturing more ventilators. We're happy to help take the or file organization off their hands. The big news uh, is that in, in response to a petition that U.S. PERG uh, put out asking for the medical device manufacturers to release the service information, uh, today five state treasurers put out a call to the manufacturers echoing that, saying you need to, you need to post the service information. That's great. That's great. It's really fantastic to see states acting in an organized fashion. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and banding together and saying, yes, this is, you know, this is a strategic limit. And that's, that echoes what we've been hearing the Biomed saying is that there's some machines they have information for. There's some, like some of the newer Medtronic machines where it seems like nobody has the service manual. Yeah, there there are actually codes, you know, kind of, you know, specific codes that you need to type in passwords or codes to access the diagnostic information. So they're kind of locked. Yeah, we, we've been told that some of these have there's, there'll be a, a service code, a password that you have to punch in to get access. Yeah, and the manufacturers, some of them only they have it. Some of them, it's you have to go through their training school and get trained on servicing it before they'll give you the code. What's your feeling about that? I, I, I might ask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you have to trust the biomeds to be professional and, and put the information in the service manual and give them the opportunity. If, if they have equipment that is in their hospital, they are uh, motivated to spend the time to, to learn how to work on it. Yeah. If, if you had to go to a, a training school for every different machine that was in a hospital, it wouldn't be viable. So it also, it limits, it limits your, your resiliency. I, w- I would say spend more time working on making the service documentation good uh, so that people can train uh, train themselves in, in their own time. Because what happens if you have one technician at the hospital that they've paid to send to the authorized training, and then that technician is out sick yeah, or isn't, isn't yeah. working a shift that day? Yeah. So, and what's the point if they can't train their, their, uh, the folks they work with? So f- final question is, you know, we, we started off talking about the fact that, you know, COVID and coronavirus kind of threw a wrench into the, you know, mar- into the, um, you know, right to repair machine that was, that was rolling forward and, and looked promising for this year in terms of getting right to repair legislation passed. Right. We were expecting to have some floor votes and possibly get it passed this year. Yeah. Yeah. That's all kind of on hold. I, I do wonder, though, whether the pandemic has in some ways been a benefit to the larger argument about why repair is so important and really what the stakes are to, for access to repair information. I think so. I wrote an article in Wired a couple of months ago about what it takes to make a, a resilient society. And you think about all of the, the cracks that are starting to show up. The toilet paper was the first one where like, we didn't realize that we, the world didn't have sufficient home toilet paper production. Right? So that, that, that's, a, that's a trivial one. But there are there are broader challenges where where in a time of crisis, so the the, the bottlenecks pop up, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've been saying and we in the repair world have been saying for a long time, hey, there are some critical bottlenecks that are impeding our ability to to repair all of the things in our lives, whether whether it's our electronics, medical equipment, you name it, and it has. You know, politicians have been receptive, but it has not been at the top of their priority list. And I think that now we're seeing, oh, gee, we really need to focus on the resiliency of society on the way that all of our systems can adapt and flex. You know, in every single state we have seen, when they list essential services that have to stay open, the auto repair shops are staying open, the electronic repair shops are staying open. Yes. As a percentage of, of retail that is, you know, that is still open, repair makes up a very large portion of it. Right. Because it's about keeping the machinery that operates society running. Right, right. And medical device, of course, is just is is at the at the top of that pyramid of, of critical machinery you, you need running uh, right right alongside Absolutely. critical infrastructure. Right, right, right. And, and and it's revealing not just there's a lack of access to service information, but there's also just a shortage of biomeds. There right. are not enough biomed technicians in the world. Yeah, as, as hospitals are trying to cut costs, and so you have a, a, a shortage of personnel, and I'd say this is the case in the electronics world too, we just don't have enough repair people. Right. We as a society need to be doing everything that we can to 
encourage encourage that profession. You know, repair jobs are green jobs. Yeah, uh, and, they, and they're kind and, of and they're good blue collar jobs as well. Uh, you know, support a family. You know, have a repair business or work as a repair technician, and you know, make a good living wage that you can use to support yourself. I know that's one of the arguments that we've had when we've met with legislators. Is listen, these are great jobs. These are jobs that we want to encourage. Why are we sucking the oxygen out of the room for for people who want to do this and instead saying, no, we'd rather have this roll off an assembly line in Shenzhen, China by, you know, uh, folks who are, you know, overseas um, and and don't have, you know, aren't making a living wage, you know, and, and, and don't have rights, you know. It reveals right this this globalization of manufacturing where we're very dependent on products rolling off the assembly line in China and then we use them for a little while and then hey it doesn't matter if your AirPods only last for two years right. because I'll just get a new one. Well, what happens if the U.S. and China don't get along anymore? Yeah, yeah. Or, right. The, the, and, and so we, we of course we need more manufacturing here. We need a we need a more robust society, but. You know, being able to maintain what we have, right? Right now, everyone is going on a pause of maybe manufacturing new things. And so from what I'm hearing from all the computer refurbishers is that demand for used laptops is just through the roof. <laughs> they can't find enough of them to sell. Right, right. Kyle, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, we're really excited to see what the response is from the companies to these state treasurers asking for information. Uh, clearly, the treasurers are looking at the price and availability of new ventilators and saying it's going to be vastly more economical to fix up and maintain the ones that we've already got. Hospitals right. have older ventilators sitting in warehouses that they could bring back into service. Right. And again, this is the same argument as in the consumer electronics. Where it's like, oh, it's just cheaper to get a new, you know, whatever, dishwasher or TV. And it's like, well, is it? Are you sure about that? You know, because that, the, the you know, the thing may just need another, you know, $2 part. <laughs> and that's definitely cheaper well, than buying a new you TV. You bring in the new machine, yeah. then you have to train people on the new machine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, these hospitals have medical staff who are already trained on operating the existing ventilators. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Kyle Weens of iFixit, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about Project Biomed and uh, your effort to make paramanuals, service manuals for respirators and other medical equipment available online. Thank you for having me. This was a fun conversation. As always. In our second segment, we speak with Jonathan Crones, a repair enthusiast and instructor at Boston College, who was part of the army of volunteers who stepped up to sort through hundreds of thousands of pages of medical device documentation donated by biomedical technicians. I'm Jonathan Crones. Um, I organize community repair events in the Boston area, and I'm on the faculty at Boston College. The project, I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, started out with sort of a pretty urgent call to the, the biomedical engineer community, uh, asking for information about ventilators in particular, and then, you know, a lot of the other uh, medical devices that are seeing really an unprecedented amount of use today. So iFixit had pushed out a number of calls to the community through their website and their various channels. Um, I heard about the project, you know, once they had received a lot of kind of amazing materials from biomeds around the world, they realized that they were in over their heads and reached out to 
what has become a really wonderful and robust kind of repair community repair and amateur repair community uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And I think also targeted librarians and, and folks who professionally, you know, understand about about archiving. And uh, then they had uh, sort of a, a kickoff call and a surprising number of people showed up. I'm sure Kyle told you they had more people interested in coming to the call than they had seats in their um, video conference software. So a number of people who wanted to participate in that kickoff call weren't able to. And we sort of got going. Uh, they had set up a, a database that we all could uh, access and set up a, a procedure and flowcharts. And we signed up to take, take on folders and uh, we were off to the races. So as I understand it from Kyle, this is really kind of like a data dump from these biomed technicians who had, you know, kind of um, like everybody's got their toolbox. And, and if you're a biomed, that toolbox includes documentation on all these different devices that you might be called upon to repair or work on. So uh, when you when you kind of delved into this um, data dump, what what were you looking for in particular and, and how do you make sense of it? Well, yeah, it definitely was a data dump. Um, we learned later, uh, Kyle. And, and his colleagues did a great job. They brought in some of their colleagues from their partners from the biomed community, really to, to talk us through the need, um, how biomeds work, how they what their relationship is with these manuals. And we learned that there's sort of there is information that circulates. You know, there, there are these hard drives that circulate around uh, with with um, manuals on them. And so, uh, you know, we definitely had multiple duplicates of these dumps. Lots of people were excited to share their whole copy of of their their archive. I wanted a bit of a challenge. So I opened up one of the miscellaneous folders and it was all sorts of things. I mean, I, a lot of uh, hospital furniture, um, you know, beds beds and lamps and uh, anesthesia systems and dental systems. There's a lot of physical therapy equipment. Really anything you could imagine will have, you know, showed up there. And, and we learned also that as part of getting FDA approval, manufacturers have to publish service manuals. And so really everything has a service manual. What we've also found is that the service manuals get worse the, the newer the device is. You know, so some, some of the best manuals I came across were published in the, the 80s and the 90s. Of course, few, I would bet that no hospitals in the United States have those equipment and that equipment anymore. Um, you know, that equipment, if it hadn't been junked, it was probably ship, shipped overseas somewhere. But really clear, wonderful diagrams and circuit diagrams and parts lists. The, the new stuff, the stuff that's published in the last few years, uh, it's really clear that, that the, the um, uh, the manufacturers aren't that interested in supporting biomeds to repair the equipment. They really do want hospitals to buy service contracts. And you can tell just by reading the manuals. Of course, that's not universal, but it definitely seemed to be the trend as I was looking. You know, the, the newer manuals are really flashy, but don't have the circuit diagrams. They don't have the parts lists. It, it is much more difficult to expect you'd be able to to really do a detailed troubleshooting and repair on one of these devices. Were you um, prioritizing? Uh, was it sort of like if you find it, just uh, document it? Or were you really on the hunt for the types of, um, of ventilator and respiratory equipment that's um, that's prioritized right now? That's a, that's a great question. No, I so I fix it. They established a hierarchy. And when they first got the data 
the dump internal to iFixit. They did a lot of the archiving and the processing of the ventilators uh, documentation. There were a couple of folders that were labeled ventilators and other folks in the kind of in the network jumped on those. As I was going through it, I didn't, I mean, we, we were given instructions and this was really hard for me. I have a, a background in library work and archiving as well as my kind of engineering background. And this is the case for a lot of the archivists where the inclination is to figure out how to preserve everything. But that's not the point of this project. The point is util- you know, to be utilitarian. And so we really did move really quickly through these folders. And if there was something that was a, was a duplicate or an old version of something, we just, you know, chucked it. And really the point was to to just start putting together a, a hierarchy, a, a, a classification tree uh, for, for these devices. And so I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I was simply moving really fast through the folders and and sorting things into the appropriate folders. And so I came – I actually don't think I – I didn't come in across any proper respirator uh, ventilators. I did come across uh, CPAP. Yeah, uh, CPAP did, machines. CPAP and machines. And, yep. Yeah, we came across those, um, and also came across uh, anesthesia systems. Uh, so I know those are were also really high priority because those can be used in a pinch um, uh, to provide ventilator support in ICUs. And so all of this, did you get any, uh, was there any um, uh, interactions with the other librarians and archivists in terms of like uh, helping helping each other navigate this huge trove? Because I, I, Kyle was sort of saying that the amount of documentation and just the diversity of medical devices is kind of overwhelming when you look at it, just like how many different versions of, first of all, how many different pieces of equipment there are. And also, of course, every manufacturer has their own version of that equipment. And that's the, the corpus is large. <laughs> it's, it's very large. And it really, it, it could use, I, I spent, so I had, um, there are for-profit uh, databases of service manuals on, online, or, or at least you know pay pay to access. So I actually had one of those websites open. If I was unclear where something would get sorted, I would search for that device, you know, on existing uh, existing databases to try to figure out how other people have classified it. I mean, it, it, it's a it's an amazing project that they put together. Uh, it would I think it's it, it probably was really scary for some of the librarians to see how the classification emerged because I don't it's not best practice necessarily to have a wiki based or a, a, a collaborative classification. Uh, you ended up with huge amounts of duplication um, and, you know, in, in lots of different places. And they they've dealt with that over, you know, over time. And, and Kyle's really a wizard. And, and, you know, when he realized there were patterns emerging, he would write scripts to go through the database and merge files and merge folders and reorganize stuff. And so it, it ended up being OK. It's going to be it's going to do the job really, really well. It's going to meet their goals. It is not a uh, an archival project. And that was clear from the beginning. But, you know, um, one of the things that, that we were also uh, guided by is the practicality nature of it. So on the one hand, everything is searchable. So as long as, you know, as long as the right word is in the file name, and I know there's a metadata project coming after this, so everything's going to be tagged as well. But as long as, you know, if you can search for it, it doesn't really matter where it is, where it is uh, 
organized. Um, but also we were told by kind of one of the biomeds who came to one of the meetings, how biomeds tend to organize their own files. And so that helped us. And, and I never came across any of the, the you know, I know that, that uh, other folks came across issues with uh, multiple languages. I never had anything other than English in my folders. Uh, other people came across like proprietary, not, not, like hospital financial information and that stuff had to be had to be deleted. So first of all, I think one of the things that this pandemic has, sh you know, kind of shone a light on is first of all these incredibly important people, these biomedical technicians and, and the work that they do kind of silently, you know, within hospitals and other facilities um, to keep equipment up and running. And also, of course, some of the challenges um, that those people face these days as, as more and more OEMs look to kind of uh, muscle them out of uh, out of their work. But I wonder, you know, is is one of the things that come out of this maybe the, the need to um, to have a proper uh, archive for, you know, repair uh, documentation and, and manuals and this type of information it, it historically I don't think for the most part has been archived but maybe it needs to be people often hearken back to the examples of when appliances would have circuit diagrams in them right you open up the case and there's a circuit diagram there and you know certainly that doesn't happen so much anymore uh, and there, there. I mean, again, there, there are vendors who do that, right? And in both the, the, um, you know, the PC context, you know, companies like Dell um, do it. And I know in the medical context, there are companies who continue to to operate that way. And and, um, but but most do not. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know the real problem is the exclusivity is the exclusivity parts of these contracts because really this is the moment that breaks you know these sorts of these sorts of access models access over ownership models that have been promoted as part of all sorts of economic efficiency arguments as well as sustainability environmental efficiency arguments that look if people don't have to buy their stuff anymore all they all they really need is access we can be a lot more resource efficient we can you know we as a manufacturer can design something um, that is more repairable or that might have a higher capital cost but because you're only accessing it you're not buying it it'll be more economically viable for you well we see that 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 model while it may work in normal times absolutely falls apart in a pandemic and it really calls into question the the exclusive nature of it. And also, like, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but of course, that's not the business model that they're that they're offering. It's not like Amazon, you know, you're, you're leasing a server on the cloud versus buying the buying the hardware. That's right. You're buying it. And <laughs> it's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. We want you to, to pay a big premium to buy the hardware, but then we actually want we're not giving you ownership rights. We're, we're, we're kind of leasing it to you. That's true. Yeah. Um, because without the software, you know, it, it's useless. Do you see this some um, this type of project may be moving beyond uh, medical devices and um, uh, catching on in other in other areas as well you know consumer electronics and so on yeah it's a great question um, I, to, to be perfectly honest I don't think I, I think and th this it's sort of a perfect storm in a lot of respects I mean for one there was a huge societal need and so the risk fit you know to i fix it for doing something like this is pretty minimal because any manufacturer that starts yelling about this is going to just get shredded by public opinion um 
on the and 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 the second point is these manuals exist for for medical devices and for nothing else. Right. Every time I buy something new, the documentation that comes with it, I throw into a filing cabinet. And I've, I've started going through, you know, without really looking at, at what the documentation is. And I started looking through it and it's all useless. Like there's there's very little in the documentation that comes with consumer electronics that gives you any insight whatsoever. So it really does require a much more resource intensive enterprise like iFixit's online repair manual where you know they pay people to actually develop repair procedures. So I, I don't see a sort of a parallel process happening because manufacturers simply don't publish repair information for almost anything else. It's an interesting insight into, into the right to repair strategies that have been going on because he, he, here in Massachusetts, uh, this is the second year, I believe, for digital right to repair that's been introduced uh, in the state house. And this year they actually removed medical devices yeah. from from that bill. And so what we're seeing is this, this very strange juxtaposition of this one class of, of device that has been excluded and yet might end up being the most repairable thing because of of this uh, yeah with with the, with the highest consequence of 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 omitting it right i mean that's um, right yeah i was just blown away by the level of interest i mean you know when i run the in person and help to organize the in person repair events there's always interest but this was a whole you know, order of magnitude, more people wanted to dedicate a significant amount of time to doing this. And, you know, uh, it's it's really impressive. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful to, to everybody's time for contributing. Well, we're really grateful for you taking time away from your teaching schedule and so on to uh, to help out with us. Well, thank you. Jonathan Crohn's, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us on uh, Security Ledger Podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure.